From Politico, this is Women Rule, where we bring you real talk with women bosses. I'm Anna Palmer, senior Washington correspondent and co-author of the Politico Playbook. I was told by my male agent at the time to take my MBA off of my resume because I I didn't want to seem too smart and to lie about my age. Well, I didn't do either. Today, we're talking to documentary filmmaker, actress, and women's rights advocate Jennifer Siebel Newsom. I mean, I was typecast as a trophy wife and kind of put into this box that was really hard to break out of. That's why I started, you know, after, you know, conversations with girlfriends realized um, that I wanted to do something about it. There is no appreciation for women intellectuals. It's all about the body, not about the brain. What you just heard was a clip from Misrepresentation, the 2011 film that launched Siebel Newsom's career. Breast implants, did you have them or not? If you waterboarded Nancy Pelosi, she wouldn't admit to plastic surgery. When we sat down together, we talked a lot about her work on women and the struggles they face in the media, in the workplace, and we also discussed what drove her to that after starting out working for nonprofits and NGOs in Latin America. I think that I couldn't imagine raising a daughter in a climate that's so demeaned, ridiculed, and objectified women and girls. And uh, so misrepresentation was, was born. We spoke at the campaign headquarters of Gavin Newsom, Jennifer's husband and the current lieutenant governor of California. Her husband, who used to be the mayor of San Francisco, is also running to be California's next governor in an election this year. Since she's in the thick of it, we also talked politics with Siebel Newsom. We discussed the Me Too movement, her husband's gubernatorial run, and everything in between. Stay tuned for my conversation with Jennifer Siebel Newsom. On the podcast, we'll be bringing you real talk with women bosses, asking how did you make it? What advice would you give a woman looking to lead? If you're a fan of the show, please subscribe to Women Rule on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us and leave a review. And please share our episodes on social media. And follow me on Twitter and Instagram at apalmerdc. Women Rule is produced by Politico in partnership with our founding partners, Google and the Tory Burch Foundation. And now, our interview with Jennifer Siebel Newsom. Jen, well, thank you so much for joining us today on the Women Rule podcast. We are here with you today in San Francisco. We're actually at the campaign headquarters of Gavin Newsom, your husband, who's running for California governor. So there's a lot of political activity surrounding us. But we're going to hold off on the political talk right away and talk a little bit about you. You're a filmmaker, an actress, a staunch advocate for women and girls. I want to talk first about the Representation Project and how it came about after directing your first hit documentary, Misrepresentation. Sure. Um, So we premiered Misrepresentation at the Sundance Film Festival in 2011. Um, Standing room only, sold out um, audiences. And... It was the film that kind of knew that it was more than a film. It was a little, it was a movement in a sense. Um, So many people asked us to continue the conversation um, and the um, inspiration for mobilization and and activation. And so we launched the Representation Project uh, in May of 2011. And literally it's just um, become just a a wonderful a cultural change organization that um, really looks at the damages of limiting stereotypes and uh, injustices related to gender and the intersection of gender, race, and class, and um, ultimately inspires people to shift attitudes and behaviors towards these stereotypes and toxic norms and transform culture. So talk a little bit for those that might not have seen misrepresentation. 
What exactly was the message about women in the media? Sure. So misrepresentation really explored the underrepresentation of women in positions of power and influence, and it, it really connected the dots between the media's misrepresentations and underrepresentations of women, and why we see such a dearth of women in leadership, not just in the media, but across the country. I feel like you were kind of ahead of the curve. I mean, we were clearly going through this massive Me Too cultural moment where women this women's awakening. Um, but this was, I mean, several years ago that you kind of hit on these topics. Yeah, I mean, I, I look, you know, we've had decades and decades of feminist work examining uh, inequality and um, women's progress and really trying to move us forward as a community. Definitely, I think the film, though, st struck a chord. You know, you had Killing Us Softly with Jean Kilborn prior. Um, and this was sort of a its own beast um, that really kind of, I think, has brought more uh, men into awareness of, whoa, okay, we really do limit women and how we see their value as predominantly in their youth, their beauty, and sexuality, and not in their capacity to lead. And then I followed that up with my next documentary, The Mask You Live In, that I think has made the argument even more compelling for men um, to, to see that they themselves are also being failed by a culture that sees their value in physical dominance, sexual prowess, and financial control at the expense of empathy, care, and collaboration, and ultimately at the expense of being human. Well, before we drive further into your work, I want to talk a bit about you and your background, how you grew up uh, before you got into the entertainment industry. You grew up in California with a pretty conservative family. Uh, how do you deal with, how did they deal with your political involvement now? So I was raised in a family of all girls. Um, my father uh, has um, had, you know, fiscally conservative beliefs. And on the other hand, he's he and my mother really raised us to all be athletes and tomboys in a sense. And, and my, my father basically said I could do anything a young male could do. And so I really expelled and excelled in sports, as did my sisters. Some of us played college sports. Um, my mother would always say, as the eldest of uh, my sisters, that I needed to be a leader. So I think, on the one hand, um, my upbringing was conservative, but on the other hand, it was progressive, mm -hmm. right? And um, the fun thing about having married a Democrat and um, kind of merging the families is that I think you know, my father's come to really respect, and I actually he did respect him before, but really respect my husband's political values and also, you know, learn from him. Uh, just as I think my husband really values that perspective and conversation because he recognizes that, you know, even though my husband, my father didn't vote for Trump, the 26 counties voted mm -hmm. for Trump. And so we have in California, despite being a blue state, we have a real large population that still um, votes more conservatively. And so um, it, it's been an interesting, um, I would say, it's an interesting dance. <laughs> As all families are. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Did you talk about, like, I didn't grow up talking about politics every night, right? We watched the news growing up where I grew up, but we weren't talking about policy and things like that on a daily basis. Did you grow up in a politically active or was it just kind of you knew it was conservative? We grew up, I would say, I grew up in a household that really revered Reagan and um, was, and really just, I think my father's issue was predominantly a fiscally conservative mm -hmm. point of view. Um, 
I think we talk politics a lot more now. And (laughs) my husband's actually the best uh, at managing the dialogue and the conversation um, in a way that really, um, you know, I, 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 I... regret ever bringing politics up when he's not around because he just has a way of everyone listening and everyone staying calm. <laughs> In a time where not a lot of people are staying calm. When a lot, a lot not a lot of people are. Mm-mm. Well, to backtrack a little more, you got your undergraduate degree from Stanford University and you also got an MBA from Stanford. After that, you were really active in international development. You helped women entrepreneurs in countries in Africa and Latin America starting environmentally sustainable businesses that was all very different from being in films and right. you know acting. Talk a little bit about your time working in that sector. How, how did you get your start there? What was driving you in that arena? No, great question. So I um, I grew up speaking Spanish and um, had just an affinity for um, different um, Latin American cultures. I got involved with Conservation International in high school, opened up a chapter with one of my girlfriends. Um, She and I actually spent a summer in high school in Costa Rica working for Conservation International in the La Misad Biosphere Reserve. And um, that sort of began my my sort of commitment to um, environmental uh, conservation work. Uh, The reason I ask about it is because you're you're in this kind of NGO world doing environmental conservation, and then you shift. And then I shift, and I I shift, and I end up going back to Stanford Business School um, and, you know, focus on global management and entrepreneurship um, as a sort of tie to what I was doing before, but really was drawn to the drama department that was right next door to the Stanford Business School. It was calling you. It was calling me. It was, I'd done theater when I was much younger, and I just really wanted to explore humanity a little bit more and was really pulled in that direction. I took a class in business school on um, business and entertainment, and Sigourney Weaver had come up and visited Harrison Ford. I'd, I'd met through Conservation International. He sat on the board of Conservation International, and um, I saw the power of media is really what happened. It was like I saw the power of media um, to affect change and and to move um, charitable initiatives forward. And I thought, okay, maybe this is like the path that I can take. And so what happened was um, I ended up posting for business school, going to into the entertainment industry and um, as an actress and a producer. Um, and that's when kind of, my eyes completely opened to, I saw things that I probably wouldn't have seen had I not lived and worked in African and Latin America with women. Um, I saw things in Hollywood that I felt like were unjust mm-hmm. and, um, and misrepresentation was really born. Well, talk about the shift, right? Because you're in this career path and so many women are in this, right? You've been plugging along in your early 20s. You have this kind of goal set. Mm-hmm. Were there naysayers Yes. We're telling you, can you, what are you doing? Yeah, You're not yeah, going to yeah. be one in a million. Well, totally. <laughs> First of all, my parents begrudgingly supported me, um, my, you know, being an actress. I think they were very nervous and anxious about that as, as, many parents are. When I was down there, you know, my my first male agent had told me to, I started in 28 in the entertainment industry, which is old by Hollywood standards. We like to joke that Hollywood AARP starts at 25. <laughs> um, and I was told by my male agent at the time to take my MBA off of my resume because I could, I didn't want to seem too smart and to lie about my age. Well, I didn't do either, but it really created this, like, I, I started to, to question myself, 
the industry, <laughs> you know, what's going on here, our culture. Um, and when 28 is too old, like, yeah. <laughs> something's really gone awry. <laughs> and then, you know, obviously I witnessed a dearth of women in front of the camera and behind the camera, and I really saw, I mean, I was ca typecast as a trophy wife and kind of put into this box that was really hard to break out of. And, you know, the casting couch, all that kind of stuff, all the Me Too, Harvey Weinstein stuff that's come up, like, all that exists, and I ex experienced some of that myself. Um, but I also... Um, you know, saw this opportunity. And I think um, that's why I started, you know, after, you know, conversations with girlfriends realized um, that I wanted to do something about it. And I also at the time had started dating my husband and um, who would then, Gavin was mayor of San Francisco and he introduced me to um, former Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice and at the time Secretary Hillary Clinton and Speaker Nancy Pelosi and Senator Dianne Feinstein, and I noticed this sort of disconnect between the way the media was representing women and the way powerful women um, were in in the real world. And mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, I obviously, you know, I wasn't even thinking of having children at the time, but I had this like maternal instinct that I couldn't imagine raising a daughter in a climate that so demeaned, ridiculed, and objectified women and girls. And uh, so misrepresentation was was born. And so in misrepresentation, you initially just wanted to be a producer on it, right? Yeah, because I knew how to produce. I knew how to raise money. I knew how to organize people. I, I, I could manage that process. I didn't envision myself as a director, mostly because I'd been directed as an actor. And so I just thought that, like, and I really thought that was sort of more a male's mm -hmm. domain. And um, I did a short film with a woman director who had been an actor, actress previously, who was really a fabulous director. And I loved that experience. And um, so... It, I think in the back of the mind I, I mind, I knew it was possible. I just didn't know that I could do it. And what happened was I approached so many um, female directors in the entertainment industry who had done docs or were interested in doing docs with the content of the film and said, I'll produce it, I'll do everything. Raise this the is money. the story, I'll raise the money for you. Like, you know, will you direct this for me? And they're, they were all like flattered and honored and they thought it was such an important subject to, to put on screen. And yet at the end of the day, they basically said, Jen, we can't because no one will hire us afterwards. And that made me so angry, <laughs> you know, because there's such fear and it's real fear. And I don't know if I'm just like, you know, stubborn or if I just refuse to accept limits. You know, like I did say, my dad always told me I could be anything and do anything. So I was like, screw it. I'll just direct it myself. And, and I did. And I honestly didn't know what I was doing. And I just surrounded myself with smart people and I made some mistakes. Um, I had trouble raising funds. Fortunately, I, um, my godfather's wife became a dear friend and mentor, and she put some seed funding in. And, you know, I would go from, like, house to house and raise $2,500 here, $5,000 here, you know. How much did you have to raise for? I think ultimately the budget was, like, 800 and some thousand. Um, but it was, like, there were over 400 individual investors. You know, it was just little piecemeal money. What kind of advice do you have? Because that is honestly the biggest thing so many yeah. for women, right, is the hurdle of as a yeah. candidate or as a you're going to be a startup or you want to yeah. do anything, right, yeah. is getting, I mean, kind of hat in hand going yes. for $2,500. Yes. You can't you, you can't accept no. You can't accept rejection. You have to go back six, seven times. I mean, you also have to respect when someone sets a firm boundary and says, I'm sorry, but I'm not able to do this. Um, but you also, so you have to have courage and confidence. 
but it also it's incumbent on the men, like men who hold the predominant wealth in our country. Mm-hmm. You need to invest in women. I mean, that's my message is that men need to invest in women and women need to invest in women and women need to learn how to invest. Even if we have less wealth, we have to figure out how to just invest a little bit. Since you made the movie, there's been obviously the Me Too movement. There's all these women who are doing, you know, they're directing films. There's majority, you know, female casts, all of this effort to make sure that the people behind the scenes are also not just, you know, white men. What do you think of today's women's representation in Hollywood? Is it enough? Is it just like the start? So I think we're just sort of at the beginning of seeing change. and. What uplifts me is you have leaders um, at ICM who are committed to 50-50 representation in leadership, um, which means equal pay, equitable representation at that agency, you know, by 2024. Like, that's, we need to see more agencies doing that. We need to see more studios doing that. So you need, obviously, at least to get to a tipping point, but ideally to move towards 50-50. I want to talk just briefly about the Me Too revelations on sexual harassment and assault in Hollywood. We've kind of touched on it a little bit. Uh, You've spoken publicly about your own Me Too moments and wrote about it uh, at the hands of Harvey Weinstein. How did you feel when his widespread abuse finally came to light? Um, (sighs) Everything. Um, uh, it, you know, it really shook me to the core because on the one hand, I was like, finally. <laughs> and on the other hand, you know, I was like, oh, my gosh. You know, had any of us spoken out earlier, mm-hmm. um, could we have prevented all the pain that followed? But we did speak out. We spoke to each other. They're just culturally, there wasn't. I believe, an audience that was willing to accept this. I mean, it was the large open secret in Hollywood. And so, um, and it it took, I think it took Cosby and Roger Ailes and all the Fox News guys. And for this moment, for people to go, okay, like the shoe's going to drop finally on Harvey Weinstein. And everyone said what they've said. None of the, the stories, they're horrifying when you read them. They're Frankly, um, you know, to, I mean, I believe them all because I'm like, yep, that happened, that happened, you know. Sure. Um, and it's just a shame. It's a shame that it had, that it was this open secret. I want to talk before time is up about your current projects and also dive into a little politics. Uh, you are currently in production for The Great American Lie, mm-hmm. which is the culmination of your documentary work so far. Give us the broad strokes of what it's about and talk to us where you are in the production process. So we are um, experiencing the greatest social and economic immobility um, since the Great Depression. And the, the Great American Lie really um, exposes how our gendered values, our values of power, dominance, and control, really values of, like, America being about power and money um, have taken such a toll on us as a country and at the at the expense of empathy, care, and collaboration such that we're in this dire, dire place where the gaps between the haves and have-nots are so great, you know, the, the whole concept or notion of the American dream mm-hmm. uh, that 
you can make it in America, that hard work will guarantee success regardless of your circumstances. So that that's a lie, right? That's increasingly mm-hmm. a lie for so many um, vulnerable and marginalized communities. And, and um, so the film really exposes and, and the, you know, the underbelly, the values that have allowed us to get to this place and sort of inspires a path forward where we can right these injustices. That feels pretty well into like what your husband's working on too. 100%. Yeah, right? I know it's really funny and we both came from different places. Like I love to joke that Gavin is a, you know, he's so, such, he's a policy wonk. He's like super committed to, I mean, he's always, ever since I've known him, he's been obsessed with um, um, Bobby Kennedy and Star mm-hmm. Shriver and their um, campaigns to, um, in, in separately, but really to address poverty and, and, to, and, and to give people opportunity in America. Talk about, we talked to so many women who are candidates this cycle, um, and that there's obviously an exciting thing happening with women in this country, but you have been, you know, supportive and been in a relationship with a guy who's been kind of the, the front leader in the, in the political side of things, and you have a family, you have children. How do you balance that? How, in terms of being on the campaign trail, in terms of being at home, I mean, school's going to start, you know? How yeah. does that work? Yeah. We, as a society, don't value women's work <laughs> enough. Again, it's the sort of invisible infrastructure that holds our society together. And we have to start valuing women's work and valuing the feminine if we're going to heal as a nation. And so the beauty of my husband, I think, I mean, he was raised by a single mom and his aunts and his sister, essentially. And so he's very comfortable with feminine leadership and feminine authority figures. And so what's kind of nice is that I think, I mean, even when I met him, he'd already appointed the first female police chief and fire chief and port authority. And so we already had this, like, cool reverence for strong women. (laughs) Um, So anyway... we, uh, I, I, it's hard, like personally, if you, like personally, it's yeah. super hard. We have four young children um, under the age of eight, the youngest is two, and two of them have uh, learning differences. And, um, you know, there's, it's hard, like it's not easy, but, but what do we do? We like, I surround myself with incredible women predominantly, but also a few good men who just really are supportive and who um, recognize what I and we have taken on. And, um, and you know, I, I, I'm grateful for the opportunities I've had, the struggles I've had, honestly. Like, I don't wish them on anyone else, but I know that if I'm struggling, the woman who's holding three jobs, barely making minimum wage, you know, whose husband's gone, who's raising three kids on her own, like, she's really struggling. And so in a weird way, it... I'm grateful for my own experiences because I think it creates more empathy for others. So I was reading a news article this morning, and you were talking about, you know, obviously your husband's the odds-on frontrunner to to get uh, to win in the fall, but that you might think about being called the first partner instead of the first lady. (laughs) I said that in an interview. I love the concept because we're going to have a female governor someday soon, you know? I like to say, maybe give us eight years, but <laughs> <laughs> we're gonna have you know, we, we've got to have a female governor. There's so many incredible women, and 
And we, California has this incredible opportunity to really, again, demonstrate to the rest of the country what's possible. And we've sort of been lagging in the arena, in the political arena, in terms of women's leadership at the state level. I mean, at the governor level. Not Clearly, we've had incredible leadership with women senators um, and uh, former Speaker Pelosi at the um, congressional and Senate level. But, um, yeah, no, I think that partner's kind of cool because also it – opens up the opportunity for, uh, you know, a, uh, um, any couple to really step in or, or um, and that's exciting to me. And you talked about the initiatives and wanting to, you know, think about how maybe you would lead on a lot of these yeah. issues. Is there anything you already have been thinking about that yeah. would be, you know, you want to take on kind of day one? Definitely. I mean, well, I'm so committed to addressing social and economic immobility, and I think we have a, a huge um, opportunity here in California to kind of try and get this right. We obviously have an affordability crisis, housing crisis, um, homeless crisis. Uh, our education system is not where it should be. Uh, so because my expertise has largely been in the cultural arena of looking at how we can shift people's attitudes and behaviors towards um, limiting norms or toxic norms, uh, I, I, I would want to, you know, convene experts and, and those who are already care about these issues and figure out how we can be supportive um, to get their policies uh, passed. Uh, but really, you know, I'm super focused and I've always been focused on empowering women. We've got a major wealth gap. Mm-hmm. Um, confronting women, you know, white women make 33 cents or own 33 cents on the white man's $1 of wealth and African American and Latina women have one and two cents respectively on the white man's $1 of wealth. So we, I want to, there's a lot I'd want to do to kind of empower women such that, you know, with that empowerment, they can, um, you know, do more for their families and have more opportunity in, with respect to their own careers. So before I let you go, I have to ask, you are around someone who's been a politician for a long time. Have you ever, as a political bug, caught you that you would want to run for office someday? Uh, I have so much respect for, and I love and admire all the women that I've had the great fortune of being around who have been in the sphere. Um, so it's definitely exciting. And right now I'm super focused on finishing my film, getting the representation (laughs) project to the right place, getting Gavin elected to be governor so that we do have that opportunity, um, and then just simultaneously supporting all the women that are running for office and the good men that are running for office in California. All right. Well, thank you so much. Thank you. I appreciate it. Women Rule is produced by Rena Flores. Dave Shaw is our executive producer, and our booker is Jessica Andrews. If you're a fan of the show and you listen on Apple Podcasts, do us a favor and leave a review. It helps new listeners find the show. And one last thing. If you have any thoughts about who we should feature on Women Rule, let me know. Tweet me at apalmerdc. And of course, hit that subscribe button. And thanks for listening. Healthcare is already the biggest industry in America. And it's still growing. But it's not all surgeons and doctors. How we get that care and who delivers it is changing by the day. You know, being a home health aide is not being a maid to anybody. It's about helping someone that cannot help themselves. I'm Dan Diamond, and this month on Politico Pulse Check, we're exploring some of the quickest changing and fastest growing jobs in healthcare and what draws people to them. Listen to our series on these health workers by searching for Politico Pulse Check wherever you get your podcasts.